had very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable! You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Let's go Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, we had a bunch of kids uh, in this building all last week uh, in the evenings for Vacation Bible School. And the theme verse for Vacation Bible School is John twenty thirty one. And John tells us, we looked at it last week, John tells us that, uh, that these words were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's a one-verse summation of what the entire Bible is about. That the Bible was given to us for all kinds of great reasons, but the reason above all the other reasons is so that we would know God and so that we would have what we need in order to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and has done what he said he came to do. Defeat sin and death, pay for its debt on the cross, rise from the dead, and all of those things. That the Bible was given to us for that purpose. And so if you care about knowing Jesus at all, and growing in relationship with him, the most valuable thing, we trumpet this all the time, is for you to actually just pick up a Bible and start reading it. We, we truthfully believe that God does big things with that for his purposes. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, well, we can fix that because we want you to know God and that's worth it to us, right? So take that one. Um, also, as a nice secondary benefit to regular Bible reading, it may just protect you from being a perpetrator of our little current series that we've got here. Uh, see, if you know your Bible well, you don't tend to fall victim to this stuff. But, um, well, we'll get to that later. I don't know if anybody who really hates The Princess Bride, like the movie, uh, how many of y'all have seen it? Yeah, the vast majority of people in the room. Like, like it's hard to hate that movie. You can have obviously more favorite movies. You can just kind of be, you know, kind of neutral about it, but nobody hates it, right? It's just good, clean fun. And I think it's just this, this kind of cult classic that's full of super memorable characters that are, you know, always saying these super memorable lines. You can probably quote a few. Uh, you probably have your favorite line, but there's this one line for me that just rises to the top. Inigo Montoya, the Spanish swordman, goes, I don't think that means what you think that means. He hears a word being used incorrectly for the umpteenth time, and so he decides to call it out. And that is easily my favorite line in the movie. Now, if those of you who have seen the movie probably have different favorite lines. For some of you, maybe it's like Miracle Max, played by Billy Crystal. Uh, you're getting to the final act of the show. The heroes are about to go rescue and to beat the enemy. And so what does he say as they're running off? Have fun storming the castle. I love that line. Some of you, though, it, it's, a, it's another line Miracle Max says uh, where he's like, Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world, except for a nice MLT, mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich, where the mutton is nice and lean and the tomato is ripe. They're so perky, I just love that. And if you're JB, maybe your favorite line is probably Fezzik, who's played by Andre the Giant, in the most inappropriate time going, anybody want a peanut? <laughs> so the Princess Bride is really just it's a good movie full of really quotable, memorable stuff. It's hard not to like it. And obviously you're allowed to like any line you, that you want, but man, I, this is my favorite line for a big old reason. And it's because I find myself thinking that 
over and over again. Sometimes it's just in my head. Sometimes when my mouth moves faster than my brain, it's out loud. But I find myself thinking this phrase over and over and over again. Um, I don't think that means what you think that means. Have you been there? Can you relate to that? There's this thing, and for some reason, it keeps getting misused and misrepresented. Uh, It gets twisted, misapplied, misquoted, whatever you want to go with, by people who end up twisting that thing into something that it was never intended to be, something that it's not. And there's all kinds of stuff that we do this with in our world today. And so um, for the last few weeks, we've been sharing some some of the most common misconceptions in our world. We've been having a little bit of fun with it, and so i got some more for you this morning, right? Despite what you may have been taught in phys ed, you don't actually have to drink eight glasses of water a day. Isn't that the myth, though? You should drink eight glasses of water a day if you want to be healthy. And if you're not drinking eight glasses of water a day, you're somehow dehydrated, right? That's the way the story goes. So the origin of this myth, uh, we think, comes from a research paper, a medical research paper that was published in 1945, and it argues that adults, a normal size, whatever that means, adult, should consume about that much water every day. It translates to about half a gallon, right? Eight eight eight-ounce glasses, half a gallon. But here's the kicker. The exact same paper that argues that we need about a half gallon of water today, of a day also argues that most of your needed daily water is absorbed through your normal daily diet. The very same paper that argued that you need that much water also says, but don't worry, because you get it in everything you eat and everything else you drink. Water is in everything. So it's probably true, just because of the culture that we live in, that everybody in this room should drink more water than we should, myself included. It's not true that you need to try to force eight glasses a day to happen, right? Most of that water is in there. So what do we do? We chug an extra glass and then get on with our day, right? That's how it works. That's how you handle it. All right, number two, even though it sounds really, really cool, the vomitorium was not the place where ancient Romans threw up so they could go back to feasting. Have you heard that before? I've said that before. That, that, the, that the culture of ancient Rome was so uh, overzealous, so uh, indulgent, that they would feast and feast and feast and feast, and they would go throw up so they could go back to feasting, right? Have you heard that? Am I the only one who says that? I totally said that. I may have even said that here. I learned this week that that's not true at all, all right? Latin is a very, very literal language, all right? And so a vomitorium is what they called a large gate in the fourth century. Think about the literalness of their language. People would spew forth out of the gate, right? And that's why they called it a vomitorium. So think Colosseum there, that's why we have that picture. All those little gate things, people could pass in and out very, very easily. They could fill the place up and empty the place out really, really quickly. And so people spewed forth. So while it is true that Ancient Rome was very hedonistic culture-wise. There were orgies and feasts, Bacchus all over the place. This one is just pure malarkey. It's completely made up. We think that this rumor got started uh, in uh, 1920s by all people of, uh, uh, by of all people, Aldous Huxley, the guy who wrote Brave New World. He wrote a satirical cartoon that was talking about some stuff, and he used the word vomitorium incorrectly in the way that it's used in the, the throw-up-to-go-back-to-feast way. And it just took off from there because he was a really popular writer. And so everybody else started thinking that's what it meant. He was wrong. That's what happens, though. But if you were wondering, 
even though ancient Rome didn't have a vomitorium, or at least in the throw-up sense, that does not mean that there aren't other cultures that have it today. If we were to get on an airplane right now and go to some certain places in Vietnam, you could find dedicated sinks in public bathrooms for that purpose. Anybody want to take a field trip? No? No? You? All right, let's go. You can also sometimes find it in beer gardens in Germany. Sounds fun, right? No, not so much. All right. All right, number three. This is the one I'm very, very passionate about. The Magi, the wise men, did not show up the night that Jesus was born. Even though you own five nativity scenes that all have wise men in them, right? Every nativity scene on the planet has wise men in them. We have like three at our house. They all have wise men. The kids have one that they play with. We've got wise men. There's a pretty one that sits on the shelf. It's got wise men. The wise men weren't there. They didn't show up that night. We're told in Matthew chapter 2 that the wise men, the magi, see a new star in the sky over Jerusalem, and they begin to make the trek from their home in the far east all the way back to Jerusalem. That's not a fast walk. There was no bullet train in those days. All right, At best, they rode camels. They may have hoofed it. They show up. Matthew 2 tells us as much as two years later. They speak to Herod, who's the Roman-appointed king of Israel at the time, and and when they get there, surprise, the Roman-appointed king of Israel doesn't like the idea that there's this new king that has been born for God's people. And so what does he do? He asks all of his counselors and his wise men, hey, how long has this star been in the sky? And they give him a date of two years. And he goes out and has all the boys in the area under two years old executed. The reason he picks two years old is because that's how long the star has been around. So I got an idea. I got a great plan. Five months from now, when we all get our Christmas decorations out, take your wise men and place them as far as you can on the other side of the house, and then you'll have a more historically accurate nativity scene. You're welcome. I fix the world's problems around here. It's what I do. Number three. I got a, or number four. I got another misconception for you. Despite the fact that it might break the hearts of our friends from Minnesota, or Minnesota, there is zero evidence that the Vikings ever wore helmets with horns. Absolutely none. This, um, the, we can actually pinpoint the first time that they were depicted with horns. In 1876, Wagner wrote an opera with one scene with a Viking in it, and his Viking had horns. And then, but Wagner, he, he kind of carried some cultural sway at the time. He had a little bit of clout, all right? It's like a lot of celebrities today, right? And so as soon as Wagner's Vikings had horns, everybody's Vikings needed to have horns. And that's how it worked. Um, it's a, uh, an opera called, I'm going to butcher this, Der Ring des Nibelungen. Anybody want to judge my German? No? Okay. Or you can just call it the ring. So here's what you can do. If you're not a football fan, next time the Vikings are playing, get with a bunch of people who are, and just say, well, actually, just see how that goes for you, right? I'm sure they'll love you for it. So there are all kinds of misconceptions in our world, right? 
they're all over the place. But the reality is that a lot of times there are some significant misconceptions inside the church, too. Uh, there, there are things that, that, that get attributed to the Bible that either aren't there at all or, or maybe are there but are misquoted or misappropriated uh, as what we would call a proof text. And we, we've been learning over the course of the series that a proof text is when you make something mean something that it didn't mean by taking it out of its immediate context, by removing it from its surrounding. It's, uh, it's when you take something out of its immediate surroundings in the Bible and reframe it as something that it was not, that it's not or never intended to be. That's a proof text. And so a lot of times, a lot of times, a red flag for a potential proof text is a single verse sitting all by itself used to frame or or create the structure for a whole worldview or system of theology. Now, it's not always the case when you see a verse standing by itself, but it's at least a red flag to say, you know what, maybe I ought to read the paragraph. Maybe I ought to go figure out where this actually is in the Bible and see for myself, right? And sometimes, sometimes proof texts are done intentionally by people who are looking to, to undermine God's word and, and do damage to God's people, but honestly, a lot of the time, it's, it's really just people who are unintentional, who are lazy and don't know their Bibles very well. And as we live in a culture that's becoming increasingly less and less biblically literate, sadly, even the church is becoming less biblically literate as well, right? And so the, the, the honest reality is that a lot of this could really be prevented by simply opening our Bibles for ourselves. But listen, whether it's on purpose or not, the end result is always the same, misinformation. And when misinformation goes forward, chaos happens. And it's kind of extra wrong for us because well, we claim to worship and follow a God who calls himself truth sometimes. And so if we're going to follow a God who calls himself truth, the truth ought to be of most importance to us. And it serves us well to occasionally root out our proof text that we might be guilty of. So over the course of this little summer series, We've been looking at some of the most egregious examples of out-of-context verses in the Bible and just kind of trying to set the story straight. We want to, in a loving and lighthearted manner, just say, hey, you keep, you keep using that verse, but I don't think that means what you think that means. Sound fun? I'm having a good time with it. What's our, uh, who's our offender today? Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'll be honest, uh, I, this one may be more familiar to some of you throughout this series as a proof text, um, just because of how publicly it gets maligned sometimes. Uh, but let's have a little exercise and look at it anyways. So if you're down in the fourth quarter, or if you need to dig deep for one more rep in your workout, the Bible has got a verse for you, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and conveniently enough, if you're a Christian athlete and you just won the big game and the reporter sticks a microphone right in your face and turns the lights and the camera on and you've got to think of something quick, you've got a verse, right? It's good to keep this verse in your back pocket. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And those of you who watch a lot of sports, you know exactly the moment I'm talking about. Like, is there any dumber idea on the planet than watching an athlete try to be articulate in that moment? It's a terrible, terrible idea. There's some really smart athletes out there. There's some that aren't so much, but even the smart ones, their adrenaline's pumping. They're trying to figure out what's going on. They're trying to get back to the locker room. Hey, say something to the millions of people who just watched you on TV. Say something eloquent and 
awesome. Say something that, that tells us about everything you're feeling right now. Uh, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? I mean, isn't that how the way it goes? And so let's be honest. Keeping this verse in your back pocket doesn't sound so bad. Right? And on the surface, like, that's a true statement, right? Is Christ the one who gives us strength? Is, tr- is Christ capable of, of helping us and, or making us do all things? I think he is, right? Those are true things. And honestly, it sounds better for a Christian athlete to quote this verse than to say something like, did you see how I wrecked that guy? Like, that's kind of what I, I'm thinking in that moment. I think anybody with a lick of humility is probably looking to get out of the post-game interview. Any true Christian would be looking for a way to deflect honor from themselves in that moment and place it on the God they follow. And so the instinct there is, is good. It's not only sensible, it's commendable even. Of course God is the one who gives you strength. That's a true statement. And, and saying the opposite of that is actually heresy. But what, a, what all is included in the all things part? Like what, what, what gets put, it, put in the category, in the box of all things through Christ? Like do we really mean all things? Does that mean everything? I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this in our world, but the world we live in seems to be kind of advancing the idea every single day that I can do anything I want to as long as I set my mind to it. Have you, have you come across this in our world? If you haven't reconciled with it, it I, I don't know if you're actually paying attention because it permeates every sphere of our culture. Right? It does so religiously through things like New Ageism, right? Uh, stay positive, think positive, you'll achieve positive. That's basically the premise there. It permeates our culture commercially through things like Nike's Just Do It campaign. That's been around as long as I've been alive. And so it's not a new deal. And I know some of y'all may be willing to pick a fight with Nike for political reasons, but like slow down because any smart company is just going to market to the culture that they see in front of their face, right? And so honestly, this is happening on the ground level too. How many times were you told growing up that you can be anything you wanted to be when you growed up as long as you tried hard enough? As long as you dedicated yourself to it? When I was 12 years old, I really, really, really wanted to be a fighter pilot. I am partially blind in my right eye. I had to get a doctor's note in the state of Texas in order to pass the eye exam for a driver's license. It doesn't matter how dedicated I am. The U.S. government is never going to hand me the keys to a $20 million jet. That's not how the system works, right? I can be as dedicated as I want to. It does not matter. I have exactly 0% chance of becoming a fighter pilot. It's just not in me. But don't worry, though, because by the age of 13, I really wanted to be a professional baseball player, and that was much easier, right? There was that time in between that I wanted to somehow be both. I was going to be the first baseball player fighter pilot. It was going to be awesome. I was going to be top gun in the evenings and then go play baseball during the day. I was going to have the greatest life ever, and everybody's going to love me, especially the girls, right? But we say things like this all the time. It rolls so easily off the tongue, right? And it's because on a certain level, it sounds right. Like, does anybody want to say the opposite of that? Sorry, Jimmy, you got no shot. (laughs) It's the American dream. 
You can be and you can do anything you want as long as you've got the effort to back it up. And shame on, shame on anybody who ever would dare stand in your way. It's the air we breathe in this country. And in the Christian subculture that we've created for ourselves, well, Paul's words here, they take on a divine empowerment, don't they? I can do all things because I've got Christ on my side. I've got Jesus in my back pocket. I can do anything. If, if through my willpower and Jesus' strength, I got this. It's not just my effort. Christ is the one who gives it to me. This is the way we use this verse, but you don't have to take my word for it. I've spent some time on Google this week. And just like the last few weeks, I, I found some stuff that just by Googling the term, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. First up are the posters, because every good locker room needs a poster. You got the football poster, and they also sell a basketball version of it, because you don't want the football team having a blessing that the basketball team doesn't have access to, right? You got to even them out. That way everybody's a winner. But maybe these kind of posters are a little beneath you. Maybe you got more eye to style, the way things look, the aesthetics of it all. So you can actually do some vinyl lettering into the locker room as you go around the corner. And they can see the message that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me on their way into the locker room. It's a good, good day and everything looks nice and everybody's happy. You may notice though that the bigger message is that everybody's family. But they're also canning in the, the I can do all things message too, right? But don't just leave Philippians 4, don't just leave Philippians 4.13 in the locker room. Put it in the weight room too. So as you're doing your lunges with kettlebells, you can they can look up at the wall and they can say, I got one more rep in me. I can do this a little more. I can do this another 30 seconds. I can keep going here because you want to give them that inspiration, right? But if you really want your workout to pay off, you need to be wearing the t-shirt while you do it. That's how you really maximize your workout. But wait a second, Stephen. How do we know that all of this works? I mean, we can slap it on locker room walls and weight room walls as much as we want. We can wear uh, T-shirts and we can have posters. We can do all of those things. But how do we know that this stuff actually works? Before I invest in myself, I need some proof. Well, never fear because we have celebrity Christian athletes who use this verse all the time. Tim Tebow once made the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine with Philippians 13 written on his eye black. Okay. I wonder, though, if opposing defenses could read that as they were trying to sack him. Hands off of me, Mr. Linebacker. I can do all things. Right? You've got the golden boy of Golden State, Steph Curry. God has obviously blessed that man. He is the best clutch three-pointer, three-point shooter I know of. He had a little battle with a couple of shoe companies about putting Philippians 4.13 on the shoe that bears his name, all right? And so he finally got it done. So you got it on the tongue tab, and you got it on the inside of the tongue. I can do all things. Notice, though, that the through Christ who strengthens me part has been reduced to an ellipsis. Think that's foreshadowing anything? It's probably foreshadowing or something, right? Subtle change, but it's there. And you got guys like Manny Pacquiao. Manny Pacquiao literally quotes this verse after every single fight. And he's a good boxer, so you know it works. He won a fight last weekend at the age of 40. Everybody thought he was done. His career is over. He beat up a guy and then quoted a verse. Yeah. <laughs> so you know it works, right? 
Oh, oh, also, and after searching these things on Google, Facebook decided to suggest that I like the page, I can do all things through Christ. Apparently they thought I was really into that all of a sudden. I'm sure it's just a coincidence, though. I also saw advertisements for a youth wrestling school and personal trainers and kids' bedroom art because I want my kids to dream really, really big, right? So I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Also somehow equates to Superman. So apparently, according to this poster, all things includes faster than a speeding bullet and able to leap tall buildings in a single bound and x-ray vision. So that's cool, right? But all of that is nothing because if you were a kid my age, growing up in the 90s in the Bible Belt, the fad of all Christian fads was the power team. Ladies and gentlemen, we are the power team and we're here in your city to wage war on the something from your childhood that you thought was really really cool that now you hope never ever sees the light of day again I got some stories to tell man the power team was a strength group that would tour the country especially North Texas because that's where they were based out of but all over the country and all you saw all over the world they went to South Africa and all this stuff they're national Christian leaders and church leaders you know promoting them and and so they would travel from place to place to place and do feats of strength and at these big evangelistic rallies and they would quote over and over and over and over again throughout their thing Philippians 4:13 I can do all things I can do all things Christ gives me strength I saw them multiple times in Athens Texas growing up and according to a video we just saw, according to what I remember about my childhood, for them, Philippians 4.13 was what gave them strength to break baseball bats and rip phone books in half. And I, there was a lot more to the video. You can go check it out on YouTube if you're really interested in a laugh. But like right before I cut it off, like there was a guy who bit a license plate and ripped it in two. You might want to try that later. According to the power team, Christ was the one giving them strength. Now, is it, is it wrong to, to do feats of strength and give glory to God as you do it? No, I think that's actually a good thing. That's okay. Uh, I, is it wrong to turn that event into an evangelistic rally? Well, we can have a conversation maybe about the motives behind that. I don't know their heart. But like, like trying to use your God-giftedness to, to win people to Christ, that's, man, that's applaudable. But make no mistake, 
This is how our verse for the day is used in our camp. I can do all things, and that all things includes just about everything to advance myself or maybe to help some others, but definitely to advance myself. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength is used as an I can do anything I set my mind to as long as I give Jesus the credit kind of verse. So we've been saying throughout this series that there's no distinction between what's out there and what's in here when it comes to our fallenness and our capability to proof text. And so if we have blind spots, is it possible, just maybe possible, that we have a blind spot here too? Yeah, I think so. And so let's look at how the Bible actually frames Philippians 4.13 this morning. And to do that, we actually need to start in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 12 with me. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. All right, so what's going on here? And why are we three chapters away from where we're supposed to end up? Well, we're setting the context, right? The context of this letter, it's one thought. Yeah, he covers a couple of different things, but there's a purpose for a letter here. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a church in the city of Philippi. All right, He wrote it as a thank you note of sorts for a gift that they had sent him. All right? And so uh, the church at Philippi had taken up a collection for Paul to support him while he was in Rome. And they would go towards things like rent and food and supplies. You know, general, I need this to live kind of stuff. They send him a gift, and he's writing them a thank you note. Some of you have, are like, have tried to train your kids to do exactly that if somebody sent, you, sent them a gift. I received a couple thank you notes for graduation stuff this year. Like It didn't stick with me because I'm not very good at writing thank you notes, but some of you all are a lot better at that. Paul was apparently good at that. He wrote him a whole letter. Church of Philippi had taken up a collection for them, and now he wants to thank them. And so Paul writes this letter to this church to thank them for their generosity. That's what the letter's all about. And he actually knows this church pretty well. Philippi uh, was the first church that Paul started when he crossed over from Asia Minor into Europe. Those of you who know the story in Acts 16, uh, God gives him a vision. They've been planting churches and they've been successful in, near Jerusalem and in Asia Minor. And God says, okay, it's time to take the gospel to a new continent. And so God uh, calls Paul to go to Macedonia and into Greece. And so he does so and he meets Lydia there, who's the seller of fine purple goods, we're told. And Paul plants a church in her house. That all happens in Acts 16. The gospel had stayed in one spot for a while, but now it's time to take the gospel to a brand new world. And so that's what Paul is doing. He gets there, he meets Lydia, and they start a church. But a good bit of time has passed since that moment. In fact, several years have passed since that moment. And Paul is left there to, to go plant churches in other cities around Europe, in Greece and, and around there. And so God has just blessed that work in massive, massive ways. The gospel is going forward powerfully, and it's actually been a number of years since Paul called Philippi home. But in Acts 21, Acts 21, Paul decides that he wants to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost there. And so he's got some friends and he's got some leaders in his life that say, Paul, that's a bad idea. That's a really bad idea. There's some people in, in, in Jerusalem that don't like you, and they really want you gone. Jerusalem just happens to be a, a major hub of, uh, Jew, of the Jewish world. And you know Paul is talking about Jesus a lot and how he rose from the dead and how the Jews killed him, and now he's back alive and we should worship Jesus instead. Like That doesn't make him popular with the Jewish leaders. 
And so Paul ignores all their, uh, all their appeals, and he goes to Jerusalem, and shortly after he gets there, he gets arrested. Jews don't like that he's there. They don't like that he's preaching, or at least not preaching about salvation through Christ, the crucified and resurrected Christ. But also, we should probably point out, like, Paul also showed up in the Jewish temple to preach about Jesus. Like, he kind of picked the fight. And so, subtlety is not Paul's personality. And so he gets arrested in Acts 21. And Paul stays arrested for the rest of the book of Acts. Seven chapters, several years. Paul stays under arrest. He gets arrested in Jerusalem, and he never gets out of custody until after the book of Acts is over. Several years. Uh, uh, he shipped up the coast a little bit and imprisoned in a town called Caesarea for more than two years. And throughout that time, the Roman governor of the region, a guy named Felix, keeps calling Paul in from his cell into the court to share the gospel with everybody. So, uh, Felix never believes the gospel, but many of his people in his court do. And so Paul's like, okay, I'll share it again. People keep coming to Christ, and, well, he, he's glad to talk about Jesus. I mean, all, the rest of his time just kind of spent in a jail cell, like singing hymns and converting guards and all that kind of stuff, other prisoners. But every once in a while, he gets to, he gets to court some, some, some Roman officials, and so that's kind of nice. So he keeps preaching the gospel over and over again for these two years, but he never gets out of jail. Then Felix is replaced by a guy named Festus, which some of you need to name, name your next kid that, Festus. Festus goes, I don't want to keep on to this. I don't want to hold on to this Paul guy. Well, so Paul appeals to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, Paul has a legal right to appeal his case to the Caesar. And so Paul does that. He pulls the trigger on that mechanism, and they put him on a boat and ship him off to Rome. On the way there, they have a crazy adventure. There's a shipwreck and a big storm, and they wash up on the island of Malta, and he preaches the gospel while he's getting bit by snakes. You should totally read the story for yourself because it's kind of awesome. All right? And through all that, Paul eventually ends up in Rome, and he's placed under house arrest for two years under his own expense. And it's during this two-year imprisonment that Paul writes what we call the prison epistle. Four letters from jail. Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. The context of this letter is very, very important. And so in verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And in verse 13, he says this, so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The church at Philippi sends their former pastor some money so he can pay his expenses while under house arrest in Rome. Paul writes him a thank you note. That's the context of this letter. And instead of harping on how bad the conditions are or how the Roman uh, officials have failed to uh, rule on his case the way he wanted to, and instead of launching into a tirade about a system that both imprisons him and charges him for the privilege, something that probably every one of us would like to talk about, Paul instead goes, man, I'll tell you what, it has been a good year. It has been great. These last few years have, have really brought about some great things for the kingdom. Let me tell you about them. Let me, let me tell you about how the gospel is being preached all up in this place. 
Guards are getting converted left and right. And Christians in and around the city of Rome, they're getting more and more bold every day. And so the gospel is just going forth powerfully while I'm here. Man, it's been a good year. This is the tone of Paul's letter. This is the tone of Philippians. Paul takes the opportunity to write back to a church that has helped him, and he does so by celebrating all the good things that God is doing. And then in verse 15, in verse 15, Paul starts talking about how the gospel is going forward so powerfully that there are even some non-Christians who are like, we got to ride this wave. And, and so they start preaching Christ too. And Paul's like, well, I guess either way, the gospel's getting preached, so we can celebrate that. And then in verse 18, he says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Some of y'all think that is the most famous verse in the Bible. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says that his expectation is to get out of jail soon. So whatever. They could also execute me. It's also fine. That, that's his tone. I think I'm going to get out of jail soon. I think I'm going to get to come see you, but I may also be executed. We'll see. If I live, I continue to walk with Christ in this life and be used for his good purposes. And if I'm put to death, then I get to go be with Jesus. Sounds good. This isn't just simply a win-win for Paul. This is temporary win versus eternal win. He's okay. Paul's good. But look what he says next. Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Okay, so the tone that Paul is putting forward in this letter is pretty clear, right? Essentially, he's saying, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get out of jail because I don't think that God's done with me yet. I think he wants to use me to help build up you and other churches. I think God's still got a purpose for me, so I think I'm going to get out of jail, but we'll see. And that's okay. I mean, it's not really my choice because, I mean, getting to be with Jesus actually sounds a lot cooler to me. I'd rather do that, but it's not my call. God's not done with me yet, and so here we are. I guess we'll make the most of it. And it's with this tone, it's with this tone of the letter that we can now turn our attention to chapter 4. Chapter 4. After mentioning some people by name and encouraging everyone in general, Paul returns to the thank you portion of his letter. And in verse 10, he says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me and were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. But not, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So Paul says that here that he's rejoicing that the need finally arose for this church, the church at Philippi, to act on what he assumed was in their heart all along. 
He, he knew that they were generous. He knew that they were self-giving. He knew that they wanted to help, but they never had opportunity. And so Paul goes, hey, thank God I'm in jail. Because now you get to do something with it. You get to act on your generosity. You get to show yourself faithful. Isn't God good? That's what Paul's saying here. Praise the Lord, I'm in jail. But please don't think that I'm hurting here. I'm not, I'm not hurting because I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Whatever situation God would have for me, put me in, I'm, I'm truly happy. Look at verse 12. And I know, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is swimming on top of the water right now. He is untouchable. No matter what happens, he's okay. Sitting under house arrest in the greatest city on the planet, the hub of the ancient world, Paul is watching the gospel explode in all these different ways around him, and he gets to be near Jesus, and he says, I'm really okay here. Whatever happens next is fine. I'm all right. I have plenty this month. Okay. Month number two, I'm, I'm in hunger. Just as good. Month three, I have abundance. Rock on. Oh, month four, I'm, I, I don't have everything I need. Well, I still got Jesus, so I win. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul is untouchable right now. Not because he's making half-court threes or winning Heisman trophies. And certainly not because he's pulling reps on his max weight. It's because he knows that Jesus is near to him. And he knows that God is working powerfully for his glory. And this is crucial even at the expense of Paul. See, Paul understands here that as long as the gospel is going forward and as long as he gets to be with Jesus, whatever happens to him that serves that purpose is actually a good thing, no matter what it comes framed as. If God's going to use it to expand his glory and expand his kingdom and give him a little bit more of himself, then Paul wants it. He's begging for it. And it's here that our highlight verse of the morning actually comes into play. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, you can leave me in jail forever. I, I don't think God will, but let's just say he wants to. He can leave me in jail forever. I'm okay with that. Because I'm just hanging out here. I'm having a good time. He's the one doing the work. He's the one getting the glory. He's the one becoming more and more famous. All things are really, literally on the table for me. I'm in. Tell me what you would have me do, God, because that's exactly the step I would take. That is what Paul's saying. Life, sure. Death, just as good. Famine, nakedness, peril, sword. All right, I'm in. Do big things, God. I don't think Philippians 4.13 means what people who put it on locker room walls and write it on their eye black think it means. Not even close. Follower of Jesus, God can and God will use you powerfully, but that powerful plan may just mean that you sit for years and years and years on death row. It, it, it meant it for Paul. may mean that you sit on death row for years and years and years so that the gospel goes forward powerfully. Maybe that's God's divine plan. Maybe that's the thing he gives you strength for. 
The athlete may be able to hold up their head high even when they don't win the game and dig deep to give God the glory. That's not a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But the one who really truthfully understands the beauty and the goodness and the nearness of Jesus, the one who actually understands that we're playing an eternal game here, not a temporary one, they can hold their heads high and give God the glory under much heavier fire. Much heavier fire. So the question that needs to be asked this morning is simple. Do you see the beauty and the goodness and the nearness of Jesus? Do you know how you want to how you figure out that question? The answer to that question? It's gonna sting a little bit, but I promise it'll work. What's off the table for you? What are you not willing to give up, not willing to, to walk away from or have ripped from you forever in order to keep Jesus? Now listen, you, you may never be in a position where you have to choose between those two things. God, God's will is sometimes, very rarely even, not that, but like just hypothetically. What's off the table? I'll be honest with you this morning. I, I don't always answer that question the right way. I know what the right answer is, but there are things in my heart and life, things in my routine, things in my uh, preferences for the way I live that, that I would struggle to give up. There are days and, just to be honest, seasons where I know I can't answer that question well. But I know the correct answer. To see him clearly is to watch everything else lose its shine. To watch everything else lose its luster. There's a hymn that many of our more seasoned saints know well, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's a massive line, but it's actually possible to get the theology of it all wrong. It's possible to sing that song in a way that robs God of glory. See, that song is not saying that when we see Jesus, nothing else matters. That song is not saying that, that things that are valuable are no longer valuable in his presence. It is, though, saying that when you truly see his face, when you get a tiny little glimpse of his goodness and his nearness and his faithfulness to you, and just who he is in and of himself before he even acts on anything, the level of your eyes and your understanding of value shifts. And now things that you used to think were valuable pale in comparison. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, to see Jesus correctly is to be immediately given a much, much bigger picture. A much bigger understanding of value. To see the light of his glory and grace eclipses every other good thing and raises the level of our eyes. Paul understood this instinctively. 
Why? Because he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus. Even sitting in a prison cell under the threat of execution, Paul saw this, and he knew what was important. He knew how to answer the question. The question that I don't always get to answer can faithfully answer. Paul could always faithfully answer because he got a better glimpse than me. How would you answer the question this morning? If you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, I think, I think that the answer for you is to repent of sin and to press into the God who is infinitely good. Right? The God who outshines and outpaces every other good thing. Hear me. He is the good giver, but those good gifts are always given to point us back, lead us back to the giver. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond to God's word this morning too. And you do that by meeting Jesus by meeting Jesus, the God who is infinitely sweeter and infinitely more satisfying than anything created. The creator is much better than the creation. But he's also the God who came near. He's the God who came near. He bridged the gap created by my sin and yours and to, uh, by paying its debt on our behalf through the cross. By his stripes we are healed, the Bible tells us. Through Jesus' death on the cross, God's wrath is satisfied and we are reconciled, fully reconciled to him, awakened to new life in his name. To see him clearly and to see what he has done clearly. Well, let's be honest, how could we not love him with abandon the same way Paul did? We want to give you the opportunity to respond to him in faith this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. If you're ready to follow him in that step of faith, I'll be down here to talk. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the letter to the Philippians. God, you are the God who can do all things. And you are the God who gives us strength. There, there is nothing by my own power. If you let go, my atoms fly apart. And so you are the only one who should ever get the glory for good things. You're the, only, the one who should only ever get the glory and the recognition and the association and fame for this good thing and that good thing, whether it's feats of strength or winning on the field or holding our head high on death row as long as the gospel goes forward. You are the good God who equips and dwells with your people. So God, we ask that you give us strength in Christ for the days ahead. Whatever that looks like. Would you give us a, a glimpse of your goodness to make it easier to let go of the lesser things. You are worthy of all praise. You are worthy of all fame. And it's in you that we not only find our strength, but also our rest. So God, for those in here who know you, would you call them into deeper relationship with yourself? Would you give them a, a better glimpse of you so that we can let go? And for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them this morning? 
It's when we see you as you are that we are forever changed by you. Do big things today. In Jesus' name, amen.